Chapter six of the Tickencote Treasure by William LeCue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter six An Expert Opinion On the night following the regrettable disaster to the seahorse, I was back again in the cheap and rather comfortable rooms I had occupied for a couple of years or so in Keppel Street, Chelsea. It is a thoroughfare in which nearly every house exhibits the enticing legend apartments to lent mostly in permanent neatly framed signs of black and gold mrs richardson my landlady was full and had been for a year past so number eighty three where i had diggings was a quiet eminently respectable house a fitting residence for a man of my serious calling when however i returned with the mysterious man in a well-worn seaman's suit unkempt head and his sword in hand instead of a cane Mrs. Richardson looked scance at me. I explained that my friend had come to live with me for a few weeks and that I should want an extra room. When she, good soul, looked him up and down, noticed the big cracks in his sea boots and the slit in the sleeve of his pea jacket, and rather reluctantly replied that she would turn one of the servants out and prepare the room for my friend. Presently, however, I took her aside and explained the curious facts whereupon she said, "'Lord, doctor, only fancy, the old gentleman may be two hundred years old.' "'Ah,' I remarked, "'his age is only one of the minor mysteries connected with the affair. It is in order to solve them that I am decided that he shall remain under my care and treatment. He's just a little wrong in his head, you know, nothing at all serious. He didn't answer me when I spoke to him.' "'No, for a very good reason. He's dumb.' Two hundred years old, insane, and dumb? Lock a mercy is a strange old gentleman. Well, Mrs. Richardson, I said, you've been very kind to me for the past two years, and I hope you will do me the favor of looking after my friend. Of course I will, doctor, but what's his name? He has no name. We call him the Mysterious Man. Oh, Mr. Misery, the girls will call him, I expect. But it don't matter what they nickname him if he's wrong in the head. I laughed, and, leaving her, returned to my sitting-room, where the old castaway was engaged in examining all the objects in the room. He had opened the back of my small American timepiece, and was watching the movement, as though he had never hitherto seen any such mechanical contrivance. The day had been a busy one for me. I had arranged with Seal that the old fellow should remain with me while the mystery of the seahorse was solved, and as regards the gold... We had placed the whole of it in a big sea-chest, sealed it, and that afternoon had deposited it in the care of the manager of the Tottenham Court Road branch of the London and Southwestern Bank, where I had a small account. The documents, manuscripts, armor, and silver tankard, which I had secured from the ancient vessel, I had carried to Keppel Street. The skipper was, of course, busy on the first day of landing, but his chagrin was intense that he had lost the seahorse. That we had really discovered it could, of course, be proved by those vessels that had spoken us in the channel, but proof of that sort was not like towing the remarkable relic up the Thames. His owners, it appeared, were extremely angry at his being nearly a fortnight overdue, and that he had wasted time and fuel upon what they declared was a worthless derelict. According to what he afterwards told me, he had had a bad half-hour with the senior partner of his firm, and very nearly got his notice of dismissal. 
he pointed out to the smug go-to-meeting old gentleman who was a churchwarden down at chislehurst that the boilers of the thrush were in such bad state that he dare not steam at any pressure whereupon the senior partner replied that matters nothing whatever to us seal the boat's insured and we should lose nothing no but myself and the crew may lose our lives observed the skipper if your berth does not suit you seal there are many other men quite ready to sail in your place was the calm rejoinder after that seal left the office as quickly as he could in order to give vent outside to his private opinion of the firm and their line of ships this he did very forcibly in language that only a mediterranean skipper is in the habit of using now that i was back again enjoying the comfort of my own shabby little sitting-room after the small stuffy cabin of the thrush one rather curious incident caused me to reflect it occurred on the morning after the loss of the seahorse the squall had gone down we had passed the nor and were steaming full head into the mouth of the thames i had been seated on the bridge with seal and thorpe for a couple of hours or so when i had occasion to descend to my cabin on entering i found an intruder in the person of harding the seaman who had been told off as the keeper of the mysterious man he did not notice my approach for i had on a pair of tennis shoes with rubber soles therefore i stood in the doorway for a few minutes watching him he had spread open that document with the seven signatures that had so puzzled me and with paper and pencil seemed to be scribbling some notes as to its purport strange i thought that a common seaman could decipher those ill-written lines of latin where i had so entirely failed so i watched and saw how with his head bent to the open porthole in order to obtain good light he was carefully deciphering the words contained there and i detected by the expression on his countenance that what he found entirely satisfied him upon the small piece of paper in his palm he scribbled something now and then and was just slipping it into his pocket when i asked in a hard voice well what are you doing here he turned with a start his face flushed in confusion and stammered uh, nothing doctor i was only looking at this old parchment you got out of noah's ark you've been reading it i said i've watched you making some extracts from it give me that paper he made a movement to place it in his pocket but at the same moment i snatched the old document from his other hand and arrested his effort to conceal the scrap of paper you have no right here i said angrily and i demand that paper whereon you have made notes of an affair that does not concern you i shall not give it to you he responded defiantly then i shall call the captain you can do so if you wish i shall be paid off to-day so it doesn't matter give it to me i cried incensed at the fellow's insolence and made a swift movement to seize his wrist he was however too quick for me for grasping my arm with his left hand he screwed up the paper with his right and dropped it through the porthole into the sea i saw it flutter for a moment in the air and drop into the surging water ten yards away leave this place at once i commanded you have no right here and have evidently entered for some dishonest purpose i shall inform captain seal at once all right he answered shrugging his shoulders as he went through the doorway you needn't get your wool off doctor i was doing no harm surely having a look at that old scribble but the truth was patent the man an ordinary seaman had read and understood what was written there that look of supreme satisfaction on his face was sufficient to tell me that he had gained knowledge of some secret hidden from me 
benjamin harding was a seaman of exemplary conduct it was true he drank little seldom swore and was much more careful of his personal appearance than the rest of the grimy crew his speech betokened a somewhat better education than the others and i had more than once detected beneath his rough exterior traces of refinement more than once too i had overheard him repress a too expressive imprecation from the mouth of one or another of his shipmates tall lean and muscular his age i judged to be about forty his beard and hair sandy and his eyes a washed-out gray his cheeks showed marks of smallpox and under his left eye was a long white scar i returned to the bridge and told seal of the incident but the pilot not yet being aboard he was too much occupied with the navigation of the ship to be able to reprimand the man there and then so i went again to my cabin and counted over my treasures finding my satisfaction that none were missing i saw but little more of the man harding the skipper later on told me that he had given the fellow a good talking to and that he had expressed his regret at his insolence he had however only shipped for the voyage and would be paid off that day therefore it was useless to do more than remonstrate nevertheless the incident disturbed me i had a strange indescribable intuition that the man harding had obtained possession of some secret hidden from me that the apparently ignorant seaman was acquainted with the latin script and with those puzzling abbreviations which had so utterly floored me before my eyes he had deciphered line after line reading it off almost as easily as the copies of lloyd's and the dispatch that found so much favor in the forecastle yet why had he taken such precaution to destroy the memoranda he had written if the facts did not relate to some secret from which he expected to receive benefit thus while the mysterious man slept soundly in the room prepared for him i sat for a long time over my pipe trying to decipher the uneven scribble and pondering over what might be written on that time-stained parchment next day seal came to see me dressed in his shore-going toggery a neat navy blue suit and a peaked cap a size too small for his ponderous head the mysterious man so far demonstrated that his senses were returning that he expressed pleasure at meeting the skipper by holding out his hand to him a fact which gave both of us satisfaction i'm busy unloading now you know doctor the captain said in his deep cheery voice so i must leave it all to you act just as you think fit for my own part i think we ought to get them parchments deciphered they might tell us something interesting and the gold for the present we'll stick to that was his prompt reply if anybody claims it we'll investigate their claim as the insurance people say but as far as i can see the only person entitled to it is that lunatic over there and he jerked his thumb in the direction of the mysterious man he drank deeply of my whiskey and pronounced it good we chatted for an hour or more and when i asked about harding he merely answered oh the fellow was paid off last night i'm quite your way of thinking there was some mystery about that chap i've made inquiries and find that he hadn't been many voyages before because he betrayed ignorance of many common terms at sea and gave himself away in lots of details he was an educated man i remarked yes i believe he was he's left one or two books about the forecastle which are not the sort that sailors read what class of books i inquired 
Oh, one was a Latin dictionary, another an odd volume of Chambers Encyclopedia, and a third book called Old English Chronicles, whatever they are. The latter was certainly not a work in which a sailor would be interested. I had noted at college the medieval chronicles of Geoffrey of Monmouth and other monks, a volume of the driest and most uninteresting kind save to an antiquarian student. Yes, I felt more convinced than ever that Benjamin Harding was not what he had pretended to be. The mysterious man had taken to smoking. I had purchased for him a shilling briar at a tobacconist's in King Road, and while we talked, he sat puffing at it and looking aimlessly down the street. The pity of it all was that the poor old fellow was dumb. Even though a lunatic, he might, if he could have spoken, have given us some clue to his past. But up to the present, we were just as ignorant as to who or what he was as in that first moment when we had discovered him in the dark cabin of that death ship. To his old rusty sword he clung as though it were a mascot. Even now he wore it suspended from his waist by a piece of cord that had come off from my trunk, and at night it reposed with him in his room. Once it had no doubt been the sharp, ready weapon of some swaggering elegant, but it was now blunt, rusted, and scabbardless. Only its maker's name and the remarkable temper of its blade showed what it once had been. A week later, I set about to discover someone who could decipher the parchments and the book containing the hidden secret of Bartholomew de Chorno, for therein I anticipated I should discover some clue to the mystery of the seahorse. In the manuscript department of the British Museum, I obtained the address of a certain Charles Stafforth, who I was told was an expert upon the court and commercial hands of the 16th and 17th centuries. So, to his address in the Clapham Park Road, I carried my precious book and documents and sought an interview. A prim old gentleman in steel-rimmed spectacles received me in a back room fitted as a study, and after the first half-dozen words, I recognized that he was a scholar. I told the story of my discovery, to which he listened with breathless interest, and when I undid the brown paper parcel and revealed the parchments, his eyes fairly danced with expectation and delight. He was an enthusiast. He bent over them, handling them with a reverence and fondness which showed him to be a true paleographist. He ran quickly through the pages of the vellum book and remarked, Ah, they are not numbered, I see. Sixteenth century hand of central Italy. He recognized it at once, without looking for dates. Really, Dr. Dr. Pickering, he exclaimed, glancing at my card, this is a most remarkable story. I am sure it will give me the greatest pleasure to look through these papers, and I will do so if you will leave them with me for a day or two. The book, you see, is voluminous and will require a good deal of deciphering. They have many such at the museum, so I have experience of the difficulties in reading them. Let's see, today is Tuesday. Will you call on Thursday afternoon? By that time, I hope to have read the greater portion of what is contained here. If, however, I discover anything of very great importance, I will telegraph to you. And so it was arranged. I remained chatting with him for nearly half an hour, and then returned to my strangely silent companion, the mysterious man. The old expert had evidently been much impressed by my story, and had commenced to decipher the documents as soon as I took leave of him, for at eleven o'clock the next morning, I received a telegram from him, worded as follows. 
Please call here at once. Most important discovery, Stafford. End of chapter 6